An old book. A book about witchcraft. You're listening to the Whitewood Podcast, a show about mystery schools, the occult, and witchcraft. Would you like to have a look around? Why have you come to Whitewood? Well, because I'm interested in witchcraft. I'm your host, Nate. Come with us as we delve into the history, techniques, and backstories of these traditions and the people who practice them. Welcome back to the Whitewood Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Driscoll, and this week we are going to be talking about symbols, uh, how to utilize symbols, why we use symbols, and uh, what are some of the pre-established symbols that you might find yourself using, hopefully to uh, also describe enough technique that you don't, you're not uh, constricted to pre-existing symbols, that you could either utilize your own symbols or use symbols from something else in order to uh, have effects. And what, what is really the purpose of that? I would say that the use of symbols is a cornerstone in the occult. It's one of the foundational practices. It's going to very quickly um, find itself related to many, many other fields. You're going to find that the use of symbols is... Uh, going to be used in things like ritual and altars. It's also going to be used in mythology and in a whole bunch of different practices. And so I definitely wouldn't think that uh, symbols is um, stuck as only symbols. I would say that it opens the door to being able to use a lot of different things. But we wanted to talk about some of this basic foundational stuff first so that we have a foundation to build up for more complicated conversations as we talk about, you know, um, some of the topics that require a little bit more of an in-depth examination. So, to start off with, what the hell is a symbol, right? Well, uh, a symbol is a thing that represents or stands for something else, especially a material object representing something abstract. That's a definition that we pulled off of dictionary.com. Um, but it... Uh, it gives a couple of examples, and then it gives some, some similar words, and I think it's really important to kind of play with these ideas, right? So the example that they give is that the limousine was another symbol of wealth and authority. I think that's a pretty good idea as to how a symbol operates. You have a physical object, and it doesn't have to be a physical object. It could be things that are a little more abstract, representing things that are more abstract, like a color might represent an I don't know. They say when you get angry, you see red. So a lot of times in movies and media, they will portray anger uh, as red. Um, so that that might be an example of something where it's not necessarily a thing, like a limousine representing wealth, right? Uh, it could be a color representing something. A great example of a color, to continue on the idea of red, uh, is uh, when you're driving through town and you see those lights that are hung from strings up above your head and one of them flashes a light that says the color red and you stop your vehicle and uh, when when it really when we really break down what's happening you know um, the light does not physically stop your car you stop your car because you have interpreted the symbol that is the red light as a symbol for 
it's time to stop your vehicle. So there's symbols all around us. There's also symbols for things like uh, nationalities, where you have uh, like a flag or a national emblem that might include like an animal. Like a lot of countries have their their national birds and their uh, their state flower and their you know things like that. Where um, you you might uh, when you really break down what a flag is, a flag is just a piece of cloth that has some colors and some patterns on it. It in itself is not the nation. Right, but when you look at that flag, you have some connotation for what you believe that it stands for. That flag is a symbol of your nation, and generally, it's a symbol of your nation as you interpret it. That's going to become a really important part as we talk about symbols. Is that a lot of it is going to be up to your personal interpretation of that symbol, and um, as you explore symbols, you'll find that you're kind of in the driver's seat for how much you interpret something in one direction or the other. For example, if you use that flag analogy, uh, you might find that um, your nation's flag, I don't know, uh, to you it's associated with very positive, happy things, and, and you see all the light that is your, your national history, um, and, and you might react to that symbol uh, in a positive light. In the same way, you might only view the downside, all of the uh, you know terrible atrocities that I'm sure every nation at some point has committed. You might uh, interpret that that symbol, that flag, as uh, as a as a symbol of those negative things, and so you might have a, a negative reaction to the symbol. So even though the symbol is the same for both individuals, you'll find that it, different individuals react differently to it. And then it has, it's a very subjective experience. It has to do with how an individual interprets it. Um, of course, you can widen those horizons. You could, you know, spend time in contemplation of a symbol in order to kind of really dive into expanding the boundary of what that symbol really means to you. So in the case of that flag, you might spend some time learning some history of that country and over time, your perception on that might change in one direction or the other, or it might deepen and become more. Uh, generally, I would suggest, um, you know, trying to see every facet of it, every side of it, and have a very balanced view of each symbol. But, uh, of course, every individual is willing to make their own choices, and, and I, I hope that they, uh, well, I hope, I hope that they do whatever is working and making them the best individual, not necessarily doing what's making me the best individual by my own definition define yourself. Don't let me define you. Um, so uh, some some similar words to symbols that you might hear is like, a, like an emblem or representation or an image of something, a metaphor, an allegory. Those kind of things are, uh, <laughs> in a way, they are symbols of the word symbol. That's funny. They're synonyms um, of the idea. So uh, you might um, have a metaphor that's relating to a greater idea. And that might be a symbolic representation of that. And we often see those kind of things used in spiritual settings. Um, for example, um, it's probably pretty common knowledge that uh, when Christ taught his messages, that they were taught in allegory, in metaphor, that many times he would 
he, someone would ask a direct question and his response would not be, oh yeah, of course, Dave. It would much more be, let me tell you a story. A man was walking by the side of the road and encountered, and that's, uh, it's a powerful tool, symbols and uh, metaphor and how it's, it, you can convey very deep meanings in very small symbols. You can compact a lot of ideas into a very, very, very small space. And I think that's one of the reasons why symbols is so potent and powerful is that by adding our own willingness to dive into and expand and unfold those symbols, we can find ourselves um, creeping back into the same message over and over and over again, but finding more and more depth within it. Um, so that that's a, a very valuable practice, in my opinion. Now, when we talk about symbols in the occult, what we're saying is that um, by utilizing the power that is symbolic language and that uh, that unfolding aspect, that we can explore the divine, number one, in a way that allows us to move between different religious perceptions. You know, we can we can spend some time in one religion and spend some time in another and not not be hypocrites because we can we can treat it as you know, I'm learning what other people's symbols are and how they interact with the divine and how they interact with, um, you know, spirituality in general, uh, but still be able to unfold some of that deeper message and, and meaning that we can find into our life. Another reason why symbol is really interesting is that because it is subjective and, and uh, built around the personal interpretation, you're not limited to intended symbolism you can go out and find symbols in the world that were not placed there specifically for you um so while reading into let's say you're in like a college class where you're talking about like a specific um narrative like let's say there's a specific author that you're looking at and and they want to dissect you know kind of the deeper side of it and they say hey you know dickens was obviously here symbolically talking about this and how does that relate to the times and to the you know philosophy of his of the area that he's living in and uh, they might try to unpack some of that symbolism and that might be something where it's like intended symbolism but you also might find that uh there is symbolism that is uh not purposely put there that is um like you might, I don't know, go sit by a lake and just be taking in the scenery and, and thinking about some kind of an idea and your mind might attach onto a naturally occurring symbol. Maybe a, a bird flies down or maybe a squirrel runs by or maybe you just observe a, a tree or leaf in a specific pattern. Something might call out to you and your subconscious might say, hey, look, really pay attention to this because... This is a really good symbol for whatever your whatever idea that you're playing around with currently, and uh, you might find naturally occurring symbols to be a valuable uh, uh, a valuable way to receive and explore the concept of spirituality and, and the divine. Find meaning in that. Now, that opens up the door, of course. I think that all symbols should be used within the bounds that you can. So, um, what types of things 
uh, what you do with a symbol. So you have these symbols, you recognize how to, you know, interact with them out in space, out in the world. Uh, you find that, you know, you can depthen your relationship with the divine using them. What kinds of things could you use either for the purpose of controlling some of yourself and your surroundings or uh, just to explore some of that divine connection? So one of the first things that I would suggest with any symbol uh, is to meditate on it, to take a symbol and use that symbol as your focal point for your meditation. Try to hold that idea within your mind for as long as possible. Um, and then I would argue that meditation is not the silencing of ideas, that uh, they are going to happen. You are going to be in the middle of a meditation practice and then Somewhere in the back of your head, your mind's going to go, well, we should watch Netflix. Oh, you know, it's really interesting. Hey, we read that book the other day. Oh, you know, it's really cool. Hey, did you think about that? And uh, that's normal. Uh, that's part of meditation is to, number one, disengage from those thoughts, to not um, follow them, to, you know, to allow them to kind of come in and leave all of their own accord, to disassociate your own self-identity with your thoughts, and instead watch the thoughts enter, watch them leave, and just continue doing uh, what you were doing. Um, the example that I have often heard that I really like is you're holding a bowl of water and your goal is to make the water still. And uh, there's a little bit of waves in the water that occur naturally, whether that's the tremors of your hand or the wind blowing by or whatever has caused these tremors. And it sure as hell doesn't help for you to try to smack the waves down as you are trying to calm the pool of water. Instead, it helps to just let the waves dissipate on their own and let them go and observe them and try to hold still as opposed to smacking water down and expecting waves to disappear <laughs> because that's a great way to make more ripples and some splashes and just drop your bowl of water. Um, so uh, to use the symbol as the focal point of the meditation, similar to how you might use like a mantra, like maybe you would um, uh, say a specific, you know, mantra over and over and over again. You could hold an idea, a color, an image, a shape, uh, an animal, whatever the symbol is that you're that you're trying to interact with. You could hold that in your mind's eye for as long as possible. Then, as you drift away from it, what I would suggest, because it's going to happen, what I would suggest is that you. Instead of going, oh, gosh, darn it, I have messed up. That's all just new thoughts. You're just adding to the situation. That's you smacking the water down. Much better to just as soon as you recognize that you have drifted from the symbol that you were meditating on, to just let go, go back to the symbol, and continue on your, on your meditation. Um, a lot of times when I'm doing this, I will uh, set a timer so that I hit a specific amount of time and I can get rid of that anxiety of did I have I done this long enough um, that that brings a lot of thoughts to my mind of like how long have I been doing this how long well no dude you've set aside some time just accomplish it um, one thing I want to mention before we dive into too much of these different ways to use a symbol is that uh, it's very possible that you hear something a little interesting as we go through these and you're like man that's interesting I never really thought about it like that I'd like to learn more uh, but gosh darn it, Nate only talked about 
uh, super service level, or maybe there was one thing that he said that was like really enlightening to me, and I, I wish he would have kept talking on that exact topic for an hour. Well, uh, most of these uh, talking points are going to be their own episodes, so uh, we are absolutely going to dive much, much deeper into meditation, and hopefully even bring on a guest to talk about their experiences with meditation. So, uh, have no fear. We will get much more in depth on how you might use that symbol. So, um, how might that affect you? So let's say you have a symbol in your mind and we'll talk about some symbols that you might potentially use. Um, what might happen? Well, let's say the symbol that you're using is for some kind of, I don't know, empowerment seems to be a, a common goal. Uh, another power, powerful goal is you know, to bring love into your life by becoming a more loving individual. So let's let's uh, let's say the loving individual one is our example. Let's say we're going to meditate on some symbol of love that we've we've come up with. Um, you, the more often you do this, the more you train your mind towards this, you might find yourself inviting that energy into your life, that that uh, opening the door in your mind towards love, compassion. Um, you might also use this meditation to go through some of the symbolic journeys that um, that a lot of a, a lot of um, great spiritual individuals have uh, suggested over the years. There are some obvious examples in mainstream religion. Uh, the Buddha wrote on a, a couple of specific meditations that you know you could, and contemplations as well, not just meditations um, that uh, would lead to some specific result. Um, there's also some in uh, Christianity. You can meditate on like a specific uh, um, myth, a specific lesson that was taught. Um, you might find yourself, you know, using maybe some of the Greek myths as an example. There's a whole plethora of things that you might find yourself meditating on, but the long-term effect would be that uh, you're opening your your mind and yourself up to that energy, training yourself to uh, have a relationship with it. So if you were meditating on a symbol of love, let's say, a, I don't know, what's a good symbol of love? Um, a dove, I guess, maybe is a good example. Um, so you're meditating on a, the symbol of a dove, and then every day you sit down and you meditate on a symbol of a dove, and as you do, you start to find you know a sense of peace and love uh, entering your life. That would be an example of what you might expect from a meditation like that on a symbol. Another example might be dreaming. Uh, we are most definitely going to talk about dreaming because dreaming is one of the areas where I'm the most passionate, where I have found just a lot of really interesting things. Um, I love it. I think it's fantastic. But to just kind of at the surface, what might we do with dreaming? Well, um, uh, you if you're lucid dreaming and you're, you're at that state where you can uh, create symbols, you might be able to invite certain things into your life, similar to how we would do with meditation, by going about your dream pretending like you're not lucid dreaming, which can be difficult sometimes because it's a great way to slip out of lucidity and back into just standard dreaming. And we'll talk about some of those techniques and how to do those kind of things in a later episode for sure, because uh, it's definitely one of my passions. But um, you might introduce some of those symbols into the narrative that's already happening within the dream to 
kind of directly impose your will into your subconscious. Another thing that you might do is you might be a little less sneaky about it. You might, um, you know, uh, blatantly change the dream into whatever symbols uh, very, very overtly. Your subconscious is going to be aware that that's happening if you do it that way. So it's, it won't be so much of you implanting an idea. It'll be much more of a uh, conversation where your yourself and your subconscious might be able to symbolically communicate um, back and forth. Although some people have found that that second one uh, sometimes leads to uh, waking up uh, because of the subconscious resisting that happening, trying to put you back to sleep, and thus um, sometimes becoming aggressive. But it's okay. You're safe there. <laughs> Nothing really happens. <laughs> it's all good. Um, so let's see, what would be another example? Rituals. Rituals are, man, uh, I cannot speak highly enough of using symbols in ritual, ritual settings. Um, some really good examples might be like the Gnostic Mass, where there is, um, there are like physical objects, as well as the practitioners that are used in the Mass, are all kind of symbolic. And the playing field, the shape of everything, that's all symbolic. Uh, where the altars are all laid out, in, in Gnostic Mass there's more than one altar. Uh, where those altars are lined up, each one of the individuals, how they're dressed. These are all symbols that all kind of come together for one celebration of sacred truth, um, celebration of the mysteries. And um, in that case, you are very much, this is a form of celebration, but there are other kinds of rituals that might be more of an engagement with uh, some of those mysteries and some of those um, universal truths but uh in the case of mass there's like for example there's like a, a water dish that's used in it and that water dish is symbolic and the water that's in it is symbolic and the priestess will say things to explain the symbols she'll say you know i take this and i take this and i mix them and this is symbolic of this and um and present it as part of the ritual energetic change and in ritual what we observe happening is uh, by engaging with these symbols in that way uh, through a principle that uh, is often broken down to as above, so below. Um, you'll find that by shifting something on in the small things that's on the altar, you're shifting the larger energies that are in the room and in the in the space. And so, you can invite pretty powerful um, energies by doing a thing on a table with purpose and meaning. Um, obviously, it doesn't just happen, uh, well, it happens to some extent. It doesn't happen for the most part as you're just going about your daily life, interacting with objects. Um, but when you set aside time in a sacred space and you symbolically go through manipulating objects, uh, then you uh, often find very profound changes in the energy settings, psychologies of the individuals that are observing and taking part in that ritual. Um, so ritual gives us a lot of uh, power over um, things, and we often use that as a, as a place to celebrate the sacred, 
celebrate the mysteries. Um, and uh, really kind of, I don't know, hopefully change ourselves for the better. That would be that would be the prime goal in my mind. I suppose everyone is willing to, or is uh, everyone is capable of coming up with their own definition of what their goal should be, and I would encourage people to uh, explore the, their own intent as opposed to my intent. But uh, hopefully, you come around to a similar perspective that this is a fantastic system for self-growth, and you could get a lot of self-growth out of it. Um, what are some other rituals? Changing the seasons is a good example of another ritual. Um, so in Wiccan settings, uh, let's say it is kind of that peak season uh, where um, it's like the most spring that it's going to be. You know, seasons aren't just one day it is spring and the next day it is summer. Um, there's a transition, there's an overlap between seasons. You find that spring slowly gives way to summer and then summer builds up and slowly gives way to fall right there's like a an ebb and flow to it and so in uh, wiccan traditions and in some pagan traditions depending on the pagan tradition uh, you will find uh, they have uh, rituals and rites that are based around changing the seasons that are based on the celebration of that natural cycle um, again similar to gnostic mass it would be kind of perceived as a ritual celebration of something that they consider to be sacred and divine i would agree with them in a lot of in a lot of points but i myself am not uh am not wiccan um but i would agree that that natural cycle is sacred and that they're pretty on point with uh that celebration i i would uh strongly encourage anybody open-minded enough to at least go you know politely and reverently observe if they get an opportunity to be invited to something like that uh, maybe it's for you and you find you know this new family that encourages your personal spiritual growth and maybe it's not maybe it's just you got to observe a culture that you weren't really aware was out there and you know connect with some of the people that are in your community because you if you are not actively practicing the occult or specifically wicca uh, there is someone in your neighborhood who is and so uh to bridge that gap and make people one community that are of all different backgrounds, I think is really important. So uh, similar to how I might um, be willing to, you know, go to my friend's uh, temple or something like that, I would totally encourage others to, you know, check out a, a changing the seasons ritual and, um, and that that celebration and and really, uh, you know, open your I, I open the idea of those symbols and what they might you know, represent for those people and why they consider that to be sacred. Another ritual that deals heavily, heavily, heavily with symbols and is a foundational work for ceremonial magic and magic in general because of it uh, is the lesser ritual, the pentagram, uh, sometimes done in its banishing form, sometimes in its invocating form. So it might be something referred to as the lesser banishing ritual. The pentagram is probably its most common form um, but in general, you could just call it the lesser ritual, the pentagram, because it comes in multiple varieties. Um, through the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram, individuals uh, invoke uh, four entities to stand at the four quarters. And uh, generally speaking, the original symbology of how it was written and published the first couple of times 
uh, was using very Judaic symbols of um, like the four archangels, uh, one at each corner. Um, there's elemental symbolism in it. So you might have like a specific element like air at the east and water at the west. So there's some symbolism that has to do with uh, um, not just uh, there's not just the position of the one element, there's symbols as to how one is on one side and one is on the other, and there's a balance between those. That might, you know, potentially be something that uh, is worth exploring, how um, these different uh, directions are picked on purpose towards, uh, you know, different elements in different locations. Uh, there's also symbols of, like, um, like uh, shapes, that are that are taken into account the five-pointed star or the six-pointed star what do those what are those symbolic of um the whole thing takes place in a circle what is that symbolic of um there are motions in the beginning where uh you might uh draw certain shapes on oneself drawing light in from the light itself is symbolic so that's you know really just constantly smashing as many when you talk about ceremonial ritual magic a lot of times what you're doing is smashing as many symbols into a small space as physically possible in order to evoke very potent uh, and powerful energies and uh, um, sometimes even setting the stage for a, an, an energy to exist where um, you might use like in the case of LBRP you might use four energies to set the stage for a fifth to enter because the fifth is exists in a way which it needs a uh, empowered and clean space in order to enter. So um, that would be a great example of a ritual that is just packed with symbols. And I would argue that uh, that one in particular is a giant rabbit hole that uh, every motion, every word spoken is a, is a uh, symbol all in itself. And that the symbolic journey of going from each of those symbols into the next symbol is uh, an, an extra layer of symbols. And then it's just kind of crammed all together at once. And that's a, a pretty powerful experience. I've, I've definitely benefited pretty heavily from, uh, from experimenting with that one. I would encourage others to do the same. But as I mentioned, that one is using very Judaic symbols. Uh, some people um, struggle to utilize Judaic symbols. Um, in my opinion, a lot of that stems from um, certain Abrahamic traditions um, having individuals, members who have, you know, uh, acted rudely or um, in several points in history, even violently, towards other groups, and um, people superimposing the blame of the actions of the individual onto the religion itself. I would say that. You know, all religions are uh, coming from a place of trying to experiment with the divine and engage with the divine. So I would uh, I would bring them to the table personally and allow them to, you know, be a part of everything. But I know that sometimes people have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder uh, from specifically Christianity uh, if you live in a highly Christian area. And um, I I can understand why it might make it complicated. Uh, for you to open your mind and heart up to a symbol uh, that, you know, LBRP is just dripping in. Um, 
LBRP was written in a way where it offers the opportunity. Uh, and for more information about this, you can go into, uh, what is it, Liber, Liber O. Velmanis, um, which is commonly referred to as Liber O. If you just look up Liber O, you'll probably find it online. Um, but in Liber O, the first publishing of LBRP, um, you, you can, it, it instructs you on how you might swap symbols out, how you might take, you know, this Christian themed and, and uh, do the exact same ritual, but do it uh, maybe in an Egyptian theme or a Greek theme or, you know, whatever's working for you. So if there are uh, symbols that work a little bit better for you, you know, that is an option uh, for you to uh, experience it in a slightly different way that maybe works a little bit better for you and is less um, emotionally disruptive that might, uh, you know, bring your your own uh, challenges to the board and be able to still utilize those symbols. So that is an option. Um, other than ritual, what are some other things that we can do to interact with symbols? Um, a really common one is altars. A lot of people, especially in the occult world, uh, will maintain a permanent dedicated altar or a temporary altar where uh, maybe we don't have the physical space or there's some privacy concerns you know uh, an altar is definitely considered to be a sacred thing and so maybe you live with some roommates who you don't uh, trust to be um, respectful of your religious practice and so maybe you don't want to leave an altar up all the time because you're worried that they might disrespect it in a way that makes it difficult to leave something permanently up. Or maybe you just haven't come out as somebody that's a member of the occult and you know, you're worried that someone is going to see that altar and is going to uh, judge or react in a negative way to that altar. So there's definitely times where you might find that there are temporary altars, but a lot of people, um, as they acquire the space and the materials to, to do so, will have a full dedicated altar that is out all the time in some space, whether that's outdoors. I've seen quite a few outdoors. Uh, I've seen some that are within the home. Uh, and then depending on the religious variety, you might find that that comes in a lot of different forms. You know, it might be a single shelf on a bookshelf that, you know, somebody leaves offerings to the Buddha or something. You know, it might be a, uh, uh, maybe like a, a little bit more of like a this is a whole table that we use or the top of this is used to you know uh, build up to this one deity or maybe it's an altar for just general use right for uh, general spell work where you might have like more of the tools of the trade sitting there and you know in the times when you're using it it's all there and in the times that it's not it's still sitting there you know prepared and and uh, you know cleansed and, and dedicated to that purpose um, on an altar, you got a lot of examples of symbols. I would say that each one of the, what you call the magical weapons, that would be the, um, the items that are used for spell work. Uh, so like an incense burner or a sacred knife that you use for knives during rituals for, you know, cutting implements or whatever. Um, a wand, uh, sword is a, a common, uh, magical weapon. Um, discs, the, uh, like the pantacle or, um, 
Sometimes people use like a coin. There's a, there's a lot of different options of things that might go on the altar, but each and every one of them is a symbol. Each of every one of them has its purpose within the larger symbol, which is on the altar, you're creating a symbolic representation of the universe as you understand it on there. And um, so as you uh, make changes to that symbol, you're either unfolding your own understanding of that symbol because now suddenly the symbol has become more complicated that's on your you know has opened up and uh, developed or you might make changes to the universe by saying you know here is here is this symbol of i don't know what would be a good example here's a symbol of myself and i'm trying to lose weight and maybe i have like a clay representation of myself and i could take you know like a i don't know a knife and I could write a word on the knife that says like, um, I don't know, cardio. <laughs> and then I could literally shave off part of the clay in order to lose that weight to, uh, you know, shift the energies in my situation in order to encourage that weight loss. So maybe that's an, maybe that's an example of how might someone might symbolically use an altar either to, um, uh, one of one of my favorite things to do with it is just to have it, to keep it prepared, to keep it in a in a sacred mindset. Um, my altar, I never I never place anything down on it without specific intent. So um, I also wouldn't suggest touching anyone else's altar. It's very very rude. So if you find yourself um, maybe around some people who have an altar, before it it's perfectly fine to look at it. You know, if you if you notice like, oh, hey, that's kind of interesting. I really like that little statue there. And, oh, that's a cool little incense burner. You might turn to your friend and say, hey, would you be offended if I were to uh, to pick this up? I, I think this is a really interesting thing. Can I look at it? And they might say, no, that wouldn't be appropriate. I, I, I wouldn't feel okay with that. That's okay. You know, respect your friends. Uh, but they also might uh, might invite you into that into that space where they are saying yeah that's that's acceptable you can you can pick it up but please treat it with respect um because those items that are on the table the, the table itself the altar itself is a symbolic representation of their universe of their world their life and um if you were to pick something up and disrespect it you'd be disrespecting a part of their life and and the sanctity of the symbol and um that uh, could you know hurt their feelings and uh potentially depending on how everything is set up it could disrupt their uh, disrupt their ability to use the symbol as they see fit so um, yeah so that's some of the way that you might uh, find yourself using altars um, now on to some of the other ways that you might utilize a symbol uh, an obvious one that um, gets used a lot not just in the occult world but just in general is uh, writing, uh, performing, reading narratives. So uh, a narrative would be, you know, some kind of a story that's being told, and the symbols might find their way into that story. Now, um, it, like I said, doesn't necessarily have to be an occult thing when it comes to reading symbols, um, writing symbols. Um, you could, like, let's say you're in college and you're in a class where you're going over some of the literary classics and they're talking about like, oh yeah, do you see how Dickens um, incorporated this theme and uh, this idea, which is, you know, symbolic of the times that he was in. And, you know, do you see how this character went about this 
you know, story arc and, and how, uh, you know, so, so that might be an example or like, um, uh, animal farm is a pretty good example of a, a symbolic, you know, it's, it's a story about a bunch of animals, you know, but it's really a story about the Soviet union and communism and, you know, some of the terrible things that happened there. So that might be, uh, an example of something that's non, uh, occult, non religious that, you can see how symbols can work their way into narratives and can be a really big part of that. Um, but into the back into the occult concepts, um, writing and performing narratives might uh, might show up in like for, like the Bible, for example, or like the Bhagavad Gita, or you know, like an actual formal religious text could go over some symbolic meanings. Um, for example, when uh, anytime that like Christ is asked a question in the Bible, he never answers the question directly. He always answers it with a narrative. He, he'll, people will be like, hey, but should we be like this? And instead of be like, no, Dave, you shouldn't be like that. Or like, yeah, totally, Dave, of course. He's always like, oh, let me answer that with a, with a story. There was once a man, he was walking down the road and he encountered, you know, so you can see how... Um, Religious meaning can be a symbol that's that's put into written word, um, and that can be a pretty profoundly powerful way of communicating a message. One of the reasons why it works so well is because there is that subjective interpretation of the symbol, so you can read into it farther and farther, and you can find how it applies to whatever it is that you're currently um, going through. So... Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why people uh, read sacred texts uh, when they're trying to, you know, make decisions about their own life, is they'll go and they'll read, you know, some symbolic thing. And I think sometimes people read too much into it, and other times I think it's, uh, you know, definitely there. But what ends up happening is the individual goes, "Man, I don't know what to do about this situation that I'm in," and then they go and they read a religious text, and. They unpackage one of the ideas a little bit. They unfold that symbol, and then they go, "Man, this is exactly like the situation that I'm in right now. This is a really..." Si and sometimes it is. Sometimes it is a really similar thing because, uh, you know, thousands of years ago, when people wrote these ideas, they wrote them down because they were meaningful, because they were profound, and because they applied to a bunch of different scenarios. And uh, otherwise, the the books wouldn't have survived. They wouldn't have continued to pass it down because they would have been like, man, this is the rantings of a madman. This has nothing to do with how we should live our lives. But instead, these books get passed down because they do have some important symbols in them. Um, one of the uh, uh, sources that you might find for learning more about that kind of stuff is Carl Jung uh, wrote some books on symbolism and the psyche and... Um, how the subconscious uh, and how religion is all wrapped together in uh, religious um, materials. Um, some of it is definitely through his own personal interpretation, but a lot of it is just really interesting stuff to kind of explore. Um, there's also some professors that have, you know, thrown together some classes that are on religious symbolism, and, and uh, you can find a lot of that stuff for free online, YouTube great source for college lectures so if you wanted to dive more into religious symbolism there's definitely some options um in in including in, included in some of that religious stuff would be like mythological 
um, like the Greeks, for example. The Greeks had um, like symbols, uh, even like some of the monsters that they slay would be like symbols of something, you know, like Midas being that symbol of greed. You know, everything he touches turns to gold and he finds that, you know, it doesn't really make him happy being like a, a symbolic story to kind of convey this message that, you know, seeking wealth everywhere is not going to make you happy. Um, that, you know, you, you you could find wealth everywhere, but you sure would be missing out on some of the things that you love. Um, so that, that might be an example of, you know, religious symbolism being, um, you know, a narrative that exists written down. Um, also like uh, the chimera uh, uh, being this like, you know, it's it's a snake, but it's also a lion. It's got eagle wings and talons, and it's like all the scary things if you're living in the, you know, in the wilderness around Greece. It's like all the stuff that can hurt you and hunt you and all the predators and wrapped all into one. So it's like symbolic of that chaos and death that is, you know, out there. And uh, so that, that could be a really good example of how symbols might work their way into religious texts. Another thing that's kind of down that same road of religious um, narratives is initiations, initiatory rites. Now, I have been through initiations. I have taken oaths to not talk about the specifics of an initiation, and I intend not just with my own word on this show, but also any time I have a guest on to honor those um, those uh, oaths that I've taken to protect that information. So I won't dive into specifics, but I can say, you know, the practice of initiations is something that happens all over. There's a whole bunch of different groups that do it. Um, there's religious organizations that are, you know, occult-minded, like the OTO, the AA, various uh, covens. They all might have some form of an initiatory practice. Uh, there's uh, non-occult fraternal organizations like the Freemasons or, you know, the Shriners or, you know, those kind of organizations, they have initiations. Um, you might have uh, really, there's, I mean, there's initiations in a lot of different aspects in life and a lot of different groups. And basically what an initiation is, uh, is there's some form of a ritual, rite, narrative that an individual, an initiate, gets brought into. They get kind of walked through in the same manner that everyone else that's in the room has been walked through, you know. Everyone that's part of that special club has at some point gone through this initiation. Um, and it's some kind of a symbolic story that is supposed to uh, draw your attention towards certain meanings and, and things of import. Uh, they are kept secret. And they're not kept secret because of like, I think there's a, there's like this perception from the outside world, anyone that's never been initiated to anything, there's like this perception that it's either like elitism, that like, oh yeah, we, we only initiate people that are, know, that are cool enough to be in our cool secret club. And that's definitely not what I've seen. Of course, I'm sure there's some organization out there that acts that way, but that's definitely not what my experience with initiation has been. Um... The, it's definitely not uh, kept secret because it's uh, immoral or um, anything like that. Um, it's it's very much 
kept secret because it is considered to be sacred, because it is something that is of high import, and we don't want profaned um, and uh, joked about because it is something that we consider to be meaningful, and we want to help protect that meaning and carry it with love and respect. Um, so I, I would... Uh, if, if you're interested in initiation, I would say probably the smartest thing to do would not be to go out seeking whatever the script is because you really just like rob yourself of the experience if you were to find that right uh, out there. Um, the best thing to do would be to, uh, you know, inquire with some initiatory group that you're interested in. You know, how could I go about becoming a member and you might find out about initiations in a more organic sense um, it happens from time to time that I'm reading some books that I've collected over the years and they get to a section that they actually write down you know what the initiatory practice is of the group um, if it's a group that is still currently practicing regardless of whether I currently intend to initiate with that group I always skip their initiation chapters um, because, number one, I understand that they, you know, that actual group pro is probably trying to keep a sense of uh, respect and uh, to that. And so it's very possible that the author is, um, you know, violating that trust. Uh, so I don't want to be a part of that. That's part of why I'll skip through it. But also so that I keep the door open for myself to be able to go through that so that, you know, maybe I'm not super interested in this one particular group today, but maybe in 10 years I find, hey, you know, I am kind of interested in that group. I would like to learn more and be a part of that. And um, if I already know their initiatory practices, then I've robbed myself of the experience and I would not be able to, uh, you know, really as fully have that have that experience and so i would strongly suggest if you are you know going along reading that and uh you know do what that will for sure but um it, it's generally a pretty good practice to just skip them if you find them because you might find that either number one you want to be respectful or number two that you might want to keep the potential for yourself to be initiated later so those, those are some of the ways that I'll treat initiation. Unfortunately, I can't get into specifics. Um, I've specifically taken oaths to not get into specifics, and I intend to uphold that. And I think that it's very meaningful when you'd find yourself upholding that. But, um, yeah, there's symbols in that. You're walked through a certain narrative that is intended to symbolically communicate a message of import to you. That's how that works um let's see other narratives could include things like performances of um things that are much more publicly symbolic like a, there's a, the rights of ulysses is a perfect example crowley wrote uh, a series of what is basically seven plays each one themed on a specific planet or planetary energy Yes, I understand that there are not seven planets. It's the alchemical planets. It's um, the seven objects that can be seen with the naked eye uh, on the backdrop of the stars. Um, not even all of them are planets. The one's the moon, one is the sun. But 
in alchemy they called them the seven planets because traditionally that uh, is what they called them um, so the performance of the rites of Ulysses are basically there was there's a, a, uh, a set of plays each one touches on a specific energy note and each of the characters are embodiments of a specific type of energy and as they interact you know they they interact as their character would if that makes sense and and that's what the script and the it kind of goes over and so the narrative is this interplay of these energies and um the intention as i understand was kind of twofold number one was to rise attention towards the creation of the aa to try to get people interested in uh, this new organization, now that the Golden Dawn was phasing out this new magical organization and um, try to get, you know, some awareness. Hey, everyone, check out this. Look at this uh, Rites of Ulysses thing. This is fun and interesting, and maybe you want to know more about this, you know? So that was one intention. Uh, another intention, as I understand, was is that uh, the belief is even just reading through the script is enough to rise a specific energy in the individuals towards a as they called it, religious ecstasy, um, through the through that one particular uh, elemental exploration or planetary exploration, I guess. Um, yeah. Um, other similar things to that. So that's like a play that you might go out symbolically watch. Uh, you know, the interplay of those energies. Um, another thing that's kind of down that road is fictional stories. You know, um, symbols can definitely show up in fictional stories. Now, we're not talking about, like, uh, I don't know. I guess, you know, and to some point, every fictional story has um, symbols in it. But in particular, we're talking about occult symbols. We're talking about actual spiritual symbolism. Uh, in the case of, like, most fiction, I'm sure every author has taken the liberty of... Um, looking at something in their daily life, some person, some behavior, some thing, and kind of working it into their work. So I'm sure that, you know, that particular dwarf that slayed that particular dragon was really, you know, my buddy Dave and the way he finally figured out his mortgage or whatever. I'm sure there's some of those aspects to all fiction. When we're talking about fictional stories containing occult symbolism, we're talking about things that are purposefully set up or that act as... Kind of how we were talking about um, how you can find symbolism anywhere, you know. Sometimes it's not intended, but it acts as a really good symbol for exploring an idea. Sometimes it's intended. Sometimes the author is uh, an occultist and writes a fictional story on purpose in order to convey through symbolism. An example of that, back to Crowley, would be Crowley's Moonchild. It's a narrative about this secret society and you know they like are doing some ritual stuff and there's like a goal in mind and i don't want to get too into it because it's, it's a good book i don't want to spoil the spoil the narrative but um in the case of fiction fiction is generally fictionalized hollywoodized it's uh larger than life they they pump up the story and make it a little bit more because you're writing a book you know you want it to be interesting so there's definitely some of that moonchild included um, but at the same time, there is like, um, there is like a, there are, there are both themes blatantly in the work where they talk about like doing LRP and, you know, those kind of things, uh, that are, 
decently accurate towards the occult world, but there's also symbolism that's occurring within the characters and their dialogue and their interplay and the events that are happening uh, that might, you know, be leading towards a specific conclusion throughout the story. So that would be an example of a fictional story uh, that includes occult elements, occult symbols. Uh, another one that I love, fantastic example of this, is a little bit more modern. Um, there is a comic series that was made by Grant Morrison, the author Grant Morrison, um, called The Invisibles. The Invisibles is a series of comics that uh, follow this character, and Grant himself has done public appearances. You can find a lot of these online, uh, where he talks about how the intention with the Invisibles was that it was a sigil of, of sorts, and that as he was writing the comic, he was specifically putting in that intent for it to be a magical act. And um, sometimes he was writing the story for the sake of the story, and then things would happen in his life. <laughs> and sometimes he wanted things to happen in his life, so he would write it into the story, and that would happen. So there was this, uh, there was this intention with uh, the Invisibles comic series to be uh, a sigil of sorts. Uh, so, and it also, just like Moonchild, it does touch on a lot of um, themes that are occult in nature. Uh, they do, you know, certain kinds of meditative practices, and uh, they talk about elemental symbolisms and all sorts of stuff. It's all in there. It's really fun, great fun read. And uh, I would also, you know, if you're interested in those kind of things, also take a look at Grant Morrison and some of his work towards... Uh, you know, just chaos magic in general and those kind of, you know, elements. Um, so that's kind of how, you know, you might write, perform a narrative with symbols. You know, religious texts, initiations, fictional stories, you know, those kind of things. Uh, another way that you might interact with symbols is to eat them. <laughs> and I know this sounds kind of weird, but it's pretty common. I would say... What they call it is a Eucharist. I would say that Eucharist is probably one of the most universal concepts in religious practice. Um, so, basically, a Eucharist is some food or drink that has been, through religious means, turned into a symbol, and then you ingest it. Uh, a common example would be the Catholic sacrament, that's a Eucharist. So they, you know, have the blood and body of Christ and a wafer and a glass of wine. Both of those are symbols of the thing. And I think uh, their perception on that, their belief is that it's not a symbol, that it is literal. But um, for the sake of our conversation, we'll call it a symbol. Um, there are other religions as well that, that do that. Hinduism. Uh, you'll offer food up to a specific god and then partake in that food. Um, Thelema is a magical tradition that does a similar thing with the Gnostic Mass, which we touched on briefly. There is a sacramental aspect to it, a Eucharistic aspect to it, where um, there is what's called a cake of light, and there's a serving of wine, and uh, you would um, imbue both of them with a symbolic meaning and then ingest that symbol. Now, what that's doing is it's kind of playing on that whole concept of you are what you eat, 
and kind of playing on the concept of like, what is food? You know, when you eat food, you're taking that physically into your body, into yourself, you're breaking it down. It's being absorbed and passed throughout all of your system. And it, you kind of become that thing in a lot of ways. You know, you are what you eat. You start to become the cells of the things that you've broken down uh, and incorporate that into your being. So um, something that you might do with the Eucharist is, you know, something more like a traditional mass setting. But something else that you might find yourself doing is maybe you, uh, I don't know, bake a muffin or something. I see Wiccans do a lot of kitchen magic where they'll like symbolically create some, you know, They'll take some symbols of some things that they need in their life. They'll mix it into the food and then they'll ingest the food. And it's kind of like inviting those things into your life. So if you need more, I don't know, like temperance or something, you could uh, you could ingest a symbol of temperance and thus incorporate it into your being. So that's what a Eucharist is. It's also kind of known as a sacrament. Um, I am unaware of a religion that doesn't have one at... It, at least in part somewhere. There probably is one. As soon as I start saying absolutes and putting them out on the internet, I'm sure either through natural means of the universe just presenting them to me or or internet folks spamming me with a million emails that, that tell me uh, that I'm wrong. <laughs> if I'm wrong, let me know. I want to know. Uh, you can reach me at nate at whitewoodpodcast.com. And, uh, yeah, if I'm wrong, maybe there is a religion that doesn't. I'm not aware of one. Every religion that I know has some form of sacred ingesting of a substance during some form of rite, ritual, something. And basically what you're doing is you're taking a symbol and you're ingesting it. So that's a way that you might work with symbols. Another way you might work with symbols is uh, through, like, divinatory practices divination you know tarot runes those kind of things each one of those is kind of a symbol for something and uh you'd reach into you know the bag full of runes or you would um draw out your cards or whatever your subconscious is probably hyper fixated on something right now and you don't understand that it is or maybe you do understand i don't know but it's most definitely hyper fixated on something and uh it might be important and it might not and um Basically, that, that randomness that is pulling one of those symbols out of a bag or out of a deck can bring those concepts up to the front of your mind. And for some individuals, they believe that uh, they can actually perceive future events by, uh, by doing that. That's what divinatory practice is. But uh, some people don't uh, necessarily agree with that and just agree that it's a great way of using some kind of random symbols being delivered to the individual so that their mind can attach on the thing that it's trying to bring to the forefront and and bring it forward so for example uh tarot cards are an accepted way of uh cycle like in psychology in um you call it in like treatment in the medical community of bringing certain things to mind so if you're in counseling there i'm not saying this is common by any means i wouldn't say like Hey, everybody on this sh listening to this show, if you've ever been to therapy, they're doing this right now. Get ready for it. Definitely not what I mean. But um, there are counselors and um, therapists who will utilize the tool of tarot cards for individuals who are open to the idea uh, where they will 
you know, they'll say, hey, you know, this is this symbol. What does that mean to you? And then as soon as you start answering, that's where like the communication with the subconscious starts to happen. It's like, oh, it's funny that you would draw that because that kind of reminds me of insert idea that your subconscious was completely obsessed with and you didn't realize until it was brought to the forefront. So divination is uh, definitely something that could be utilized with um, w with symbols and it your personal interpretation comes into whether that's just what your subconscious knows or does your subconscious know the future and know more and all of that. That's up to your own personal interpretation. I'm not going to make that decision for you. Uh, but that's that's what that practice is. Um, another practice would be like symbolic change. We kind of talked a little bit when we were talking about altars and like shaving off part of, you know, like a like you make like a clay you and then you shave off part of it. That might be an example of like symbolic change where you take like a symbol, modify the symbol. Or you take a symbol and you interact it with another symbol. So like, let's say you want to bring like more passion into your life. So you take like a little you and you light it on fire, you know, and maybe that's inviting that passionate flame to enter, you know, and uh, maybe you take it through multiple symbolic changes. Maybe you start in one, you put it through one symbolic change and another symbolic change. And uh, it's pretty common with alchemy and specific to have symbolic steps in a long form of change. So that might be something you consider as an option. And then the last method that I wanted to kind of circle back to, we touched very briefly on it, but I wanted to like really get into it as its own practice, as opposed to how I kind of tied it in to something, uh, is seeking symbols, symbol seeking. This is potent. This is powerful. This is something that if you're not doing, you can get a lot out of your life by doing it. Um, and it, remember, you get to pick what the symbol is. So I'm not necessarily telling you you have to seek the same symbol that I seek. I'm just saying, hey, it's a pretty powerful practice to seek symbols in general. Pick whichever ones you're going to, you know, liberate yourself with. So um, the way you seek a symbol is you say like, hey, I need like, I don't know, I need more excitement in my life. I need excitement. And you come up with a symbol of excitement. And you say, oh, man, a, a symbol of excitement is, I don't know, like flashing lights or the color yellow or this particular type of animal or whatever the fuck, you know. Find some symbol of whatever it is you're seeking. Maybe it's maybe you're seeking love and you say you, you uh, seek out a specific symbol of love. Super easy if it's Valentine's Day, but otherwise, maybe not so easy. And then you go leave your house, and you go walk around until you find it. Okay? So, you're the symbol at that point. You're a symbol of your life, your will. You've shifted yourself into a symbol. It kind of goes back to that whole concept we were talking about a little while ago about as above, so below, right? You're just going up a layer instead of doing a symbolic thing on your altar with an action figure and going through life and whatever, right? Now you're doing it with you. You are going physically out into the world and you're going to find a symbol. So you go to the mall and you walk around until you find that thing that you're seeking. And then you go home. And then you do it again. You go out and you seek it again. You do this over and over and over again. And by actively seeking the symbol, what you are doing is you are becoming a symbol of your life and your life is being oriented towards that goal that you are seeking. So if you pick something like, you know, something pos some positive change that you want in your life right now, 
you can go out and find it physically. And if you physically find the representation of it, you will start to find that that energy enters your life and that your goal, your motivation starts to shift in that direction. So that's an example. And it's a fun example because people don't realize you're doing a cult shit when you do it. Just be like, oh, I'm just going to go to the park. And like, you know, it is what it is. Um, so that's like a really long, really big explanation on all the different kinds of things you can do with a symbol. And guess what? There's a million more. That is nowhere near a full explanation of everything that you can do. You can do a bunch more. Um, that's just kind of, hey, here's some great options that you might consider. And many of these we'll do long forum episodes on later. So, um, what symbols exist? What symbols? Yeah, we talked about how to use symbols. What symbols should you use? Well, the answer to what symbols you should use, I cannot answer for you. You should use whatever symbols work for you. I can tell you what works for me. I can tell you what works for some other people that I've talked to. Um, but I can't necessarily tell you what's going to work for you. It's going to be based entirely on your response to a symbol. And we touched on that a little bit when we were talking about LBRP, where uh, it's a very Judeo-Christian set of symbols. Maybe you don't vibe really well with that. Maybe that doesn't help you. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, you might do the exact same ritual in more of a Greek sense. You might do it in, you know, more of a Egyptian sense or... Maybe you don't want to use a pre-made system. That's okay, too. So um, I'm going to talk about some common ones that exist in the occult. But remember, you could also make your own symbols. I personally don't like to make my own symbols. I find that uh, while I've done some experimentation, and it definitely works, which brings a lot of questions as to how all this operates, it definitely works. Um it makes it difficult to work in groups and it makes it difficult to work across time. So if I'm going to work with others, we have to be using a common set of symbols. And if I'm going to read old books in order to pull the meaning that they found out of their work, I need to use the same set of symbols that they use. It's kind of like symbols themselves are a language and language is a sim set of symbols as well. So I guess really a lot more true than I think it is. <laughs> um, but uh, basically, the ability to communicate with others, that set of symbols, because we're using the same symbols, is very useful. Now, does that mean that you can't be like, man, fuck that, I'm making all of my own symbols up from scratch? No, by all means, do it. It's, it's definitely a practice. If you want to learn more about that practice, uh, chaos magic is the uh, art of doing that. They call it chaos magic because it's very chaotic because each individual is, you know, doing a completely different thing than the others um, because they're making their own symbols. It's a very chaotic system. Um, definitely not a bad practice and one that I strongly suggest people at least experiment with enough to see how it functions because it'll give a little bit more depth as to how the longer form systems exist. So some examples of uh, symbols that exist that are available for you to use in all of your workings, all of the different examples that I set up, was uh, maybe like gods, spirits, uh, mythological characters. So that's a, that's a pretty solid one where you're using like uh, a pre-built mythological system. Maybe you're pulling really heavily from Greek. Maybe um, 
there's like a lot of symbols. There's like a lot of gods that overlap really heavily across cultures. So like Hayagriva, for example, is a Hindu. Uh, it's, it's the horse, the white horse god. Um, Hayagriva is like a, a god of the, the form and fount of knowledge. He's the uh, he's uh, a knowledge god, knowledge and writing and learning and um, that could be knowledge like academics. We could be you know like hey. I'm trying to pass my college class. You know, that might be a potential symbol to work with. Um, but it could also be like more secret knowledges. Um, and written word and those kind of things. Down the exact same road is the Egyptian Thoth. Um, sometimes pronounced Thoth, but as I understand the correct pronunciation. I don't know that we know the correct pronunciation for Old Egyptian. That might be part of the problem. Thoth is how I have heard it pronounced many times. Um... Thoth is uh, the ibis, that bird with a long curved beak. It's the ibis-headed Egyptian god, the god of writing and messages and uh, learning and those kind of things, right? Um, Hermes is the Greek version of the same concept. He's movement and uh, the Roman version of him is Mercury. So uh, movement and knowledge and written word and messages and those kind of things, communication, those kind of things. So you can see there's like some heavy overlap between these symbols. And so you might incorporate more than one of them. You might just work with one of them. You might build up a really strong relationship with one of them and then go, I would like to continue delving down this route, building this relationship with the divine, but I'm getting kind of tapped out on Thoth. I'm going to switch over to Hayagriva and see if I can get, you know, if I can continue this this delving into this symbol and, and how I can build a relationship long-term with it. So that might be kind of a potential on how you might use gods. You might also use gods in your rituals, in your masses, in your uh, stories, or um, you might read religious texts that are about them and um, kind of formulate more of an understanding of them. And that might unfold certain aspects of the symbol. You might observe how they interact with the other gods around them. And that might help to unfold how this one particular thing in your life is interacting with this other thing in your life. So that would be, you know, a pretty obvious example of how you might use gods and spirits and entities and mythological creatures and, you know, those kind of pre-established systems uh, in order to, um, you know, explore. Um, obviously, as you go down this route, the academic side of uh, religious symbolism is really, really interesting. Again, YouTube start looking up religious symbolism lectures. There are quite a few of them out there and they're fantastic. And uh, they can really help to drive home this, you know, this this meaning that's just under the surface with, oh, did you notice that this god slayed a dragon? What is the dragon symbolic of his, you know, you can dive into that. It's a lot of, a lot of fun. Um, some common symbols that are used in the occult that are not tied into other religions uh would be like the elements it's a pretty good example not that the elements is completely devoid of being in other religions uh the greeks had the same elements uh some eastern traditions that have elements or very similar elements um basically it, so the wiccans have I shouldn't say the Wiccans have. The Wiccans do a great job 
at uh, educating individuals on the elements. But the elements themselves are something that show up in a lot of different cultures. Um, I bring up the Wiccans because I have noticed that some other cultures don't dive as well into the education of what are these things, whereas the Wiccans do a very good job at focusing on those elements and really kind of uh, diving into the specifics, building a real long-term relationship with one of the elements. So the four elements, earth, air, fire, water, the fifth being spirit, which kind of unites the other four. Um, you'll see these elements in many, many other places. There's Eastern representations of them. There's uh, Native American representations of them. They're commonly out there. Um, the basic idea is that it's we're not necessarily talking about summoning actual fire, but, you know, fiery aspects of the self, you know, the microcosm, that, uh, you know, passion and, you know, brilliance and, you know, those kind of things. You might... You know, with earth element or air element, you might have other associations. Some of them are tied into specific directions, depending on culture, depending on which ritual you're using at the time. For example, the Golden Dawn had more than one um, set of directions. So in one ritual, they might have the east be air, and another ritual, they might have the east be fire. And that's definitely not a blind. It's there, There's some layers of symbolism that are on top of what they're talking about. They believed that those elemental directions change. Certain Native American cultures also have directions associated with elements or, you know, um, stuff like that. Um, so the elements being earth, air, fire, water, and sometimes spirit, depending on what culture you're looking at. Um, some other elements that exist out there for you to play with are the alchemical states. That could be the alchemical planets. Which is the, and I recognize that some of these are not planets, but uh, that's what they're called. So the Sun, Moon, uh, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, those are all the objects that you can see with the naked eye that move across the sky, or sky that are not part of the backdrop that is the stars. They're the objects that move relative to our position. Um, so those are generally the traditional alchemical planets. The alchemical uh, there's also chemical forces of salt, mercury, sulfur. So those are some things where each one of those kind of has some symbolism attached into it. Sulfur is like this force that, you know, begins anew and starts motion and, and those kind of things. Whereas, you know, mercurial is more uh, liquidy, flowy, constant sh state of flux changing. Salt being like, um, like uh, more fixed, more crystallized energies, states of motion basically um and the the alchemical system of three also shows up in eastern traditions so there's other cultures that we're talking about very 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 similar things using different words for it um, but i think that's an interesting point uh the horoscopes are another example the horoscopes are um i would imagine most people have been exposed to the horoscopes in some fashion um in a modern day we talk about them as like oh you were born when the sun was in taurus you're a taurus you know and we say like oh if you were born from this month to this month that makes you a taurus uh there's definitely a lot more to horoscopes than that uh and we'll do some episodes i doubt that we can pull that off in a single episode but we will definitely dive down the astrological route of trying to 
unpackage some of that information. But the horoscopes themselves act as symbols as well. You might do like a ritual to invoke, I don't know, Libra. And uh, have Libra-like things happening around you. You know? So, um, yeah. So horoscopes can be another type of symbol. Um, there's correspondences like animals and plants. You can find these written in a lot of different books. Um, a fantastic example is 777 by, uh, and other Kabbalistic writings by Aleister Crowley. It was published by Rigardi, originally written by Crowley. Um, there are a plethora of uh, books for uh, the pagan community and the Wiccan community um, after, uh, dealing with correspondences like different plants that might correspond to one thing or different animals or colors or tones of music even. Um, there's even kind of books like the Quadrivium that start to dive into the specifics of uh, musical note and uh, artistic beauty and the way that those can be symbols and then we talked very briefly about the tarot um, the tarot is a perfect example of a set of symbols there are some that are positive there are some that are negative they're all just kind of all over the place many 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 of them are neutral and uh, you might draw a card and you know it might be a card that says death, but it's you know it's really a symbol of change, and uh, and it might be a tower, and that seems friendly. It's just a tall tower, but it's actually a symbol of absolute terrible things happening to you, you know. So um, each one of those pictures uh, can be symbolic of some kind of an event, and uh, by working with the interpretation, um, you can uh, come to symbolic understanding. So. Wow, that is a lot. There was a lot of information. I feel like we shotgunned a lot of it out really fast. And um, hopefully that's some meaningful stuff that you can uh, take with you in your life and uh, find that, you know, I would remember that symbols is not necessarily only the occult. I would say that all religions are utilizing symbol uh, as a form of getting closer to the divine and that the occult is just another group of individuals who are uh, finding meaning down that road. So, um, in conclusion, I strongly suggest that anybody who um, is interested in developing the skills and the relationship with those types of energies and getting better at it, um, strongly suggest going back to the basics and and investigating what it means to be a symbol and how a symbol might be utilized. So, good luck, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Whitewood Podcast. This show is made possible by our Patreon members. You can find us on Twitter at Whitewood Show and on Facebook at Whitewood Podcast. For links to all our social media and information about our Patreon, visit us at whitewoodpodcast.com.